Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we'll explore the different water security threats facing China at home and discuss how water plays into China's relations with other countries. In addition to struggling with major water pollution and water scarcity within its own borders, Chinese actions also impact water security along its periphery and around the world. Important rivers like the Mekong begin in China, but wind their way through other countries, meaning activity in China can directly impact other countries. Farther from its borders, China is constructing major infrastructure and energy projects like hydropower stations, as part of its sweeping Belt and Road Initiative. These projects could have significant implications for water security in Belt and Road partner countries. To dive deeper into the topic of water security in China and around the world, I'm joined by Dr. Scott Moore. Scott is the director of the Penn Global China Program and senior fellow at the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He was previously a young professional and water resources management specialist at the World Bank Group and an environment science technology and health officer for China at the U.S. Department of State. Thanks so much for joining us today, Scott. Thank you, Bonnie. So can you briefly introduce the most important threats that China faces from water pollution? And how did water pollution become such a problem in China? Absolutely. And thanks again for uh, having me on. So for China, as for most countries in the world, there are sort of two main types of water-related challenges. So you can sort of divide up uh, water resource management challenges, problems into two categories. Um, the first has to do with quantity. So these are things like having too much water, too little. Uh, and the other kind of category is around water quality, which, of course, uh, water pollution falls into. And the interesting thing about kind of comparing and contrasting uh, water quantity versus quality challenges are that most of the attention uh, tends to be focused on the quantity issues, things like water shortage and drought, uh, or flooding on the other side of the spectrum. But from a kind of aggregate economic impact perspective, and certainly uh, in terms of a human health impact perspective, water quality issues uh, and water pollution are usually, and this is certainly true in the case of China, uh, more serious challenges and issues to confront. In the case of China, most of the water pollution burdens that exist are essentially an outgrowth of industrialization and the concentration of particularly heavy industries like steel chemicals uh, in China uh, over the last couple of decades. So most of the pollution that you see in the more populated parts of China uh, is an outgrowth of that industrialization and especially uh, concentration of, of heavy industries. Another important source of water pollution, though, in China, as in countries around the world, does come from agriculture. So it's runoff, for the most part, from uh, fertilizers, from pesticides that washes into the waterways. Um, and that is kind of significant in the, in the context of China. And this isn't a problem that's unique to China, but there tends to be an overuse of fertilizer uh, and pesticides. So you get a fair amount of what's applied running off into streams, waterways, and rivers. Um, so that's, again, not a problem that's entirely unique to China, but it is a little bit more pronounced in China because the sheer quantities of fertilizer uh, and pesticide used tend to be uh, a little bit above world averages. So if we shift from quality to the quantity and look at the issue of water security, where do we find 
scarcity in China. What parts of China is it the biggest problem? And how does this relate to issues relating to climate? Really important uh, and very good question. I think there are a couple of important ways of looking at scarcity. Um, The first is just sort of sheer physical water availability. So just in terms of precipitation, in terms of the flows of of major uh, streams and rivers, in terms of uh, aquifers, just how much uh, water do you have? What is the sheer kind of volume of water that you have uh, available in a particular region? Uh, And in the case of China, essentially, you can sort of divide it into two big zones, the north, which is relatively water scarce in terms of all of those categories, and the south, which is relatively better sort of endowed in terms of water resource availability. You do, of course, have some variation there. Uh, The northeast of China also uh, has pretty high water availability. Uh, The greatest water availability is in the far southwest sort of Tibetan um, plateau, where you have uh, large uh, snowfields, gla- glaciers, et cetera, that provide a lot of meltwater. Um, but basically, you have these two big zones. Actually, a, a well-known quotation that's attributed to Mao goes, it's a little bit uh, apocryphal, but uh, essentially says the South has a lot of water, uh, the North has very little, so uh, we should borrow some of it. Uh, and that specific quote is in reference to something called the South-North water transfer project, which gets to another way of looking at the question of scarcity. uh, And that's really what kinds of technologies you have available to deal with water shortages or water scarcity. And before I kind of return to the case of China, one of the the more dramatic examples of this is the Middle East. Uh, Of course, one of the most water scarce parts of the planet. And yet, because of desalination technology and the availability of desalinated seawater, Uh, Countries like Israel or the United Arab Emirates uh, are able to meet most of their water demand for a a fairly uh, rapidly growing, large, sophisticated economy, um, despite water scarcity because of the availability of this technology desalination uh, that allows them to increase the supply of available water over what is naturally available in terms of freshwater resources. And so in the case of China, this project I mentioned, the South-North Water Transfer Project, Um, is the world's largest water diversion scheme. And basically what it does is it's a series of three separate canal systems that transfer water from source regions in southern China, the greater sort of Yangtze River Basin, northward into the greater Yellow River Basin. Uh, And of those three uh, systems, they're known as routes. The two have uh, been built and they're in operation, and they primarily supply the large urban regions and cities along the East Coast and the Northeast, uh, Beijing, Tianjin, uh, et cetera. The third sort of phase or route of the project um, has yet to be built and still hasn't received final full approval, and it would be much further west, kind of crossing the Himalayan Plateau. But because of this large set of water infrastructure, uh, China has effectively created a kind of national plumbing system um, that allows it to some degree adjust for or overcome uh, these differences in regional water availability and regional water scarcity. So it provides a degree of insurance for cities like uh, Beijing and Tianjin uh, that might otherwise be looking at some risk and some exposure to water scarcity uh, as a result of climate change. Um, and I might just add kind of on the point about climate change, 
you're both concerned about the uh, sheer volume of water available. So, you know, how much water is available from rainfall, from precipitation. Um, but you're also concerned about the increasing variability and uncertainty of that water availability. So it's becoming less and less predictable uh, around the world uh, in terms of what parts of the year you're going to get significant periods of rainfall and then when you're going to have periods of intense drought or water shortage versus periods of intense uh, flooding, potentially. And that is a problem that afflicts China as well as many countries around the world. You may recall a well-known kind of incident in 2012 where there was just a huge sudden rain burst over Beijing that completely overwhelmed the city's drainage systems uh, and resulted in widespread flooding across the city. And even though it only lasted a few hours, the rainfall was so intense that it left the city flooded for, for a couple of days, paralyzed the city in parts. Um, and it was, as a result of that, the Chinese government launched um, an initiative known as Sponge Cities uh, that's designed to uh, improve drainage and uh, improve the kind of ability of cities to absorb those high rainfall events. So the point I would make coming off of that is that when you think about water availability and, and water scarcity, you uh, both have to think about the temporal variability as well as kind of volumetric variability. And then you've also got to think about periods of intense uh, shortage and also periods of intense overabundance in the form of flooding. So let's talk a little bit about the issue of water and how it has affected China's relations with neighboring countries. Obviously, there's 14 countries that China shares a border with, so that's a lot of countries. There's a lot of potential for water security issues to have an effect on China's relations with its neighbors. So maybe you can just start very briefly by talking a little bit about under what circumstances water sort of started becoming an issue in relations between China and, and its neighbors. Did this start a long time ago and we've seen it perhaps get worse over time or is this relatively recent? For the most part, and there are, I think, a number of ways to kind of think about and answer your question, but for the most part, this is a kind of modern problem or phenomenon that's a relatively recent advent, um, the last couple of decades. And that really reflects China's sort of development trajectory. I mean, water resource challenges, as many challenges or issues that pertain to China, really are kind of a manifestation or an outgrowth of its uh, extremely rapid development since the late 1970s. So while there were certainly tensions related to fresh water between China and its neighbors uh, before uh, the 1970s, uh, I think it'd be fair to say that in terms of a significant issue in foreign relations, um, that's really something that's arisen um, in the last 35 to 40 years. Um, and that's, uh, again, just because of China's rapid development, because of the speed and scale, uh, you've had tremendous pressure placed on uh, a lot of its major rivers. So you've had greater pressure in terms of diversions of water for uses within China that can diminish the flows of rivers or streams or other waterways into uh, neighboring countries. The most well-known phenomenon or development is, of course, the construction of high dams, um, particularly on the upper Mekong uh, and on some of the uh, Himalayan uh, rivers that then flow uh, into neighboring countries in South Asia. So these are you know, the most obvious manifestations. I do think when you think about China's sort of transboundary rivers and how they affect relations with, with its neighboring countries, 
it's often important to sort of separate the hydrology, what's actually going on with the water itself, um, and then sort of how that affects broader geopolitical dynamics and the sort of broader uh, relationship between China and its neighbors. From a sort of hydrological point of view, um, oftentimes what China is actually doing with the water that subsequently flows into neighboring countries actually isn't as impactful as you might think. And to me, the best example of this is the Ramaputra, which often comes up as a source of kind of tension and uh, really fear, I think, on the part of India in terms of China's rise and, and concern that it might somehow control the waters of the Brahmaputra as a way of exerting power or leverage over India, which is, the, of course, the downstream party there when it comes to the Brahmaputra. But actually, the vast majority of the flow of the Brahmaputra arises from within Indian territory. Even if China were to build a large storage dam that could theoretically disrupt or divert a lot of the flow uh, of the Brahmaputra down into India, it actually, I mean, it's certainly not true that it would dry up the river uh, or even necessarily diminish the flows to a dramatic extent. It would certainly exert impact that would have negative repercussions, but in terms of a strategy of really kind of being able to control India's water resources, that just doesn't sort of fit with the actual hydrology of the basin. And I think that general story is repeated with a lot of the other transboundary rivers. The Mekong is, of course, the other major site of kind of discussion and contention when it comes to China and its neighbors. And there the story is a little bit more complex, partly because uh, the dams that China has built on the upper Mekong uh, have really negatively affected the ecology of the river as it then enters into Southeast Asia. But the story is also quite complicated by the fact that Several of the dams um, that have actually been built on the Mekong itself are kind of jointly financed from Chinese sources, mixed sources related to Chinese entities, but then also from host countries, from Laos, from Vietnam. Um, and so there's a very complicated interplay between what you could say are sort of Chinese interests and host country interests. Um, the net effect for the ecology of the river has been bad, but the politics are actually quite murky. And this sort of story that sometimes presented about sort of China trying to control the waters of the Mekong and that sort of thing. The story is quite a bit more complicated than that in that it's actually the Mekong countries themselves, or the elites anyway, um, that have often kind of partnered with Chinese sources of financing Chinese construction companies to build some of these dams. So the story is quite complicated in terms of the, um, of the politics. The other thing I'd just maybe point out quickly in relation to your answer there was a very serious uh, incident in 2005 on a, uh, a river that shared with Russia in the Northeast that had to do with a, a release of benzene, a very kind of uh, nasty chemical, and that briefly caused significant kind of diplomatic incident between China and Russia. So water quality issues can play into these uh, transboundary dynamics as well as kind of water quantity and, and issues and concerns about the flow. Although China's relations with its neighboring countries when, when it comes to water uh, are significant and, and are often very contentious, it's also worth noting that there are also a lot of domestic politics over water within China, uh, and particularly between uh, administrative units like provinces or municipalities. And very frequently, uh, there are disputes between these entities that arise over uh, pollution. So it's also just sort of worth noting that 
many of these kind of contentious dynamics um, that you see in the international stage are also uh, replicated at the uh, domestic and subnational levels. So are water dynamics between China and its neighbors, then um, um, my takeaway from what you're saying is it's it's not necessarily about power. It's not necessarily about China bullying its neighbors or trying to coerce them in a way that we see, for example, in the South China Sea where China's operating in you know, what it sees as disputed territory, but trying to bully and intimidate countries into not developing energy, for example, in disputed waters. We see this with Vietnam. We see this with the Philippines, for example. So in these disputes over water, are the dynamics very different in the way that China tries to protect its interests? Right. Well, I think even though I do think you have to sort of separate what's actually physically happening with the water and with the hydrology and the geopolitics, in politics, it's you know, perception is reality. So even though I think if you're kind of looking at this from a, a technical perspective, many of the sort of transboundary water issues maybe don't seem like as great a source of conflict as they kind of are in the political domain, that doesn't mean they're not real because it is the case that plenty of people in you know the Indian press among Indian policymakers, just to pick one example, really do think that China is, is seeking to control South Asia's uh, sources of water. Um, and they really see in the construction of dams kind of a manifestation of China's growing sort of power asymmetry between China and India, just to take one regional example. So I'm not saying that it's not a real phenomenon, but I think it's somewhat dissociated from the actual hydrology. And uh, just to sort of make a point in relation to your question about the South China Sea, one thing that I think is a little bit distinct about water in relation to other resources, maybe like fisheries or like oil and gas, is it does have this very deep emotional resonance. It's a very potent way of mobilizing people. And you kind of see this on lots of different levels in the U.S. You know, a very kind of well-known example would be the lead water crisis in Flint, where, you know, that really created a very deep political crisis and created some divisions that are still really being felt, certainly in Michigan, but but really throughout the U.S. Midwest. Um, so water kind of has this political resonance that for, I think, a, a deep-seated set of reasons really kind of exercises people and, and becomes a site of contention that's really more so than, than the case of other resources. So I think that there is something a little bit unusual about water when it comes to the degree of contentiousness that exists in, in political terms, in geopolitical terms, and in foreign relations. Again, with the South China Sea and, and issues like that, there I think you can make a greater case that there's a stronger kind of direct resource competition kind of dimension there. When it comes to these transboundary rivers, it, it's often less about the water itself, and it's kind of more about what the appearance of controlling that water signifies in, in the sense of power asymmetry between China and its neighbors. So let's talk a little bit about the Belt and Road and the role of water hydropower plants in uh, Chinese Belt and Road projects. Are these creating positive feelings in recipient countries or are they creating problems or is this a very much a mixed picture? A uh, mixed picture, as I think is very often the case with talking about the Belt and Road. So the sort of bulk of water sector investments under Belt and Road have been in hydropower projects. There are some quite large 
uh, hydropower dams in places like Nepal, Angola, um, that are being financed um, under kind of Belt and Road and, and related initiatives. So that accounts for the bulk of financing, and, and those are really the sort of high-profile projects. Um, there are also a number of smaller-scale kind of community-level water supply sanitation projects. Um, for the most part, those are actually offered as almost like sort of social responsibility offsets for other larger infrastructure projects. So one, for example, is tied to the Kenya Rail Project. Another is tied to the Sri Lanka um, port project. So they're very often kind of community benefit projects related to these larger infrastructure investments. So as you might expect, those projects tend to generate greater goodwill. Um, they do, at least as far as in my estimation, do serve a useful purpose. Um, once you get over into hydropower, I think the story gets a little bit more complicated. And it, it of course, depends on the specific site and region. Hydropower is a renewable form of electricity. It's it's low carbon. It also tends to be quite good for regional economic development because once you build it and get it into operation, the operating and maintenance costs are relatively low and you can generate pretty reliable electricity at relatively low cost. On the other hand, the local environmental and social impacts can be really dramatic and very dramatically negative. We're certainly seeing local opposition to some of these projects um, in sites around the world. There was the case in Nepal, for example. So it really is a mixed picture, depends a lot on the local circumstances. Uh, the last thing I would say about both those projects and the Belt and Road as a whole, um, I do think there's been a kind of learning curve and policy adjustment process with respect to the Belt and Road. And uh, I, I just returned from China a few weeks ago um, Belt and Road came up a number of times, and the sort of consensus was that policymakers would prefer to reduce the overall volume uh, of Belt and Road financing and investment and focus on fewer, higher-quality projects that incorporate uh, more stringent safeguards uh, that try to reduce any sort of opposition from local communities and sort of try to uh, effectively try to create China's soft power advantage. So finally, are there any suggestions that you can make as to what China could do, maybe one or two things that would significantly reduce the water security challenges that it faces, uh, both within China and also across the region and with its neighbors? Well, when it comes to water quantity uh, issues in particular, basically you have two types of solutions. One is to increase the available supply. Um, which is what China has, has done with the South-North water transfer. Desalination is another way of doing that. The other uh, is to reduce demand. And uh, China's also undertaken some important initiatives in that area. And it's actually worth noting that in some ways, those are uh, among the most ambitious policies in the world. One approach that's advocated by a lot of economists and water policy experts is something called water rights trading. And essentially, it's the sort of cap-and-trade principle applied to water. You take a given region, usually a, a major river basin, you say, uh, we're going to sort of allow this much water to be used within the basin, and then you somehow allocate usage rights based on that, kind of under that cap, and then you enable uh, people who, who get those rights to buy uh, or sell them, um, as the case may be. China has uh, instituted a very large-scale uh, water rights trading system. It has sort of stalled, so it's a little bit in a state of flux right now. 
but it is one of the largest in the world in terms of uh, the area extent that it covers and in terms of the number of water users. So if the current kind of logjam can be broken and if implementation can continue on that, uh, I think it'll actually be be an interesting model for other countries uh, as well. On the water quality side, it's a tough challenge, and it's worth kind of noting that there are really at least two sides to it. One is addressing discrete sources of pollution, what are known as point sources. Those are things like factories, where it's very easy to kind of see the source of pollution, very easy to monitor, regulate it. There's also non-point source pollution, which comes from diffuse sources. And again, agriculture is uh, maybe the, the clearest example where you have lots of chemicals washing off the fields. The former problem of point source pollution, China has begun to tackle with some effectiveness, and it's it's really just sort of improved regulation, monitoring, and enforcement. Still a long ways to go, but they are making some headway. The non-point source pollution problem is interesting because it's one that we really still have a lot of trouble with in the U.S., and almost every developed country does. And China similarly has huge issues with it. But again, they're actually, in some ways, leading the way. They recently announced just two weeks or so ago a preliminary plan to ban cultivation of farmland like near streams or waterways. So essentially, you have to maintain a buffer between areas where you might potentially apply pesticides or fertilizers and the waterway as a way of, of creating a barrier for pollutants to enter the waterways. And that's something that, at least at a national scale, you know, nobody's attempted um, in a place like the U.S. If for no other reason than it's just hard to see how any single authority would have the ability to, to enact a reform like that. Um, there are things that are being done, and indeed, in some ways, China is kind of leading the world in terms of ambition. I think going forward, it'll be interesting to see if they can really work out the mechanics of implementation. If so, they'll have some really good, interesting examples to offer to the rest of the world as well. We've been talking with Dr. Scott Moore, who's director of the Penn Global China Program and senior fellow at the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Scott. Thanks so much, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure. 